Bright Minds, the podcast from the John Adams Institute, is brought to you by the members of the John Adams. Why not become a member yourself, or even better, a patron, and enjoy all the extras and benefits? Find out more at john-adams.nl, john-adams.nl, and click on Become a Member. From Amsterdam, this is Bright Minds, the podcast from the John Adams Institute, a treasure trove of the best and the brightest of American thinking. And this is one of the best-selling American writers of all time, giving our Amsterdam audience a little insight into his process. And, and I just started with the cat and the mouse, and I thought, okay, they're in prison. And then I realized that they were alcoholics. They were both different kinds of alcoholics. You know, like the the mouse is getting sober and the cat just think you know, just doesn't think that it's really for him. Um, and I thought, I didn't know that when I got up this morning. I guess it's just the joy of writing fiction, I suppose. It's always a party when the John Adams hosts an evening with David Sedaris, as we did way back in 2008. The humorist and author was touring older books like Me Talk Pretty One Day, about living in France and learning to speak French. He treated our audience that night to a number of stories, including a few that are non-published because, as David said, they work better live. This includes an animal story of the kind that ended up in his book of animal stories, Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk. There's one brief expletive for those of you who care, and also one really long pause, and I'm telling you this now so you don't think your headphones are broken. And the stories were followed by a great conversation with the night's moderator, the Dutch journalist Tim Overdijk. And now, here's David Sedaris. Thank you very much for coming tonight. I sure appreciate it. Um, I was going to read a story here that wasn't in the book. Um, And I think it'll be evident when I read it why it wasn't in the book. No, it's just a difference between something out loud and something on paper. Uh, And it was written for a radio show that I do things for. um, And they did a a show called Innocence Abroad. And I think I was the only person who wrote anything from it who actually lived abroad. And I I don't think that the producers understood that this is um, something that everyone who lives in another country has to deal with. In the last semester of my final year of college, I signed up for a class titled Art and Politics. The course catalog made it sound interesting, but once we got started, I could see that I had been misled. Part of the problem was the teacher, who was gray-haired and bearded and in his late fifties. Sobel, I think his last name was. To say that he was not a gifted public speaker would be putting it mildly. Neither did he know much about contemporary art, at least not the kind being bought and sold in New York, and that, to most of us, was the only kind that mattered. What this guy mainly knew about were murals, the sort done by poor people with spray paint. (laughs) He'd drive to the west side of Chicago, photograph an underpass or the outside of a rundown school, and bring the slides to class. Then he'd project them onto the screen and proceed to talk until the darkness of the room and the dull cadence of his voice put most of my classmates to sleep. I found him as narcotic as everyone else did, but what kept me awake 
and on my toes even, was the anticipation of certain words, one of them being Latino. (laughs) What we see in many of these displaced Latino (laughs) cultures, he'd say, He took an undeniable pride in Chicano (laughs) as well. But his real showstopper, the one that made the hairs on my arm stand up, was Nicaragua. (laughs) I couldn't get enough of it. At the end of every class, he'd flick on the lights, ignoring the students who yawned and stretched and shielded their eyes against the sudden brightness. Are there any questions? Yes, I'd say. In that No More U.S. Intervention mural, what country specifically (laughs) do you think the artist was talking about? Well, that would most clearly be Nicaragua. (laughs) Then he'd look around the room, ask if there were any further questions, and frown a little at the sight of my hand, (laughs) back in the air and waving. Yes, I'd say, me again, listen, this might sound beside the point, but which Central American country do you think grows the best coffee? (laughs) He scratched his beard. Costa Rica? (laughs) Well, who's second best then? Well, there's El Salvador, certainly, but me personally, I would probably go with Nicaragua. Why do you ask? Just curious. Certainly, to a Spanish-speaking person, Nicaragua is pronounced Nicaragua. It wasn't the word itself that amused me, but the sound of it coming from certain mouths. Mouths most often that were nothing if not selective. You never heard such people ordering enchiladas. (laughs) But if that was the name of a revolutionary leader, if Los Burritos Grandes (laughs) was a mountain range amongst which toiled and oppressed peoples, well, that would be different. I think of all this now because I have to. Living in another country, I'm constantly having to decide how to say things. Take this dinner party I went to. There were 18 guests, and he and I were the only Americans. I sat between a judge and a dentist. Double paranoia for an illegal immigrant (laughs) with teeth you could open cans with. But these were kind and interesting people who went out of their way to put me at ease. The subject of language school came up over dessert. And when the dentist asked me where I had studied, I said, Paris. If the party had taken place in America, or if the person asking the question was a native-born English speaker, I'd have answered, Paris. Because it's queer to say Paris out of context. (laughs) No more pretentious than, say, Nicaragua. (laughs) But it's always viewed that way. Probably because they have better stuff in France. Shoes and palaces and the like. 
Sometimes Hugh and I, or my American friend Kristen and I, will speak French amongst ourselves, but it's always the weird tourist French we hear so often in the shops and restaurants of our neighborhoods, French that's spoken as if it were English. Donne-moi en coup de fil a new pouvant faire des courses ensemble demand. <laughs> D'accord? I should add that I am in absolutely no position to criticize anyone's French, especially when it comes to pronunciation. What I can criticize is the decision to speak it in the first place. <laughs> a case in point would be this house guest we had in Normandy over the summer, an American who'd rented a car in Nice and was traveling across the country. Have, um, have you ever been to Tours? He asked. To tour? No, tour. He corrected me. It's on the where? <laughs> Near Nunc. <laughs> Never been, I said. This is the same guest who, on his second day, decided to speak nothing but French. Not the flat, jokey kind, but the Nicaragua kind. <laughs> This in front of his wife, who speaks no French at all. I walked into the kitchen, and at the sound of his, Ah, David, qu'est-ce qu'on va faire aujourd'hui? I thought, oh, for the love of God. Do we really need to do this? I'm in my pajamas and haven't even made coffee yet. When I look back on that weekend, what really shames me was my response. Asked in Nicaraguan French what we were slated to do that day. I looked out the window and said, Io think it is ne. This is Nicaraguan Japanese for nice weather, isn't it? <laughs> Excusez-moi, our guest said. Mais je ne comprends pas ce que tu as dit. He said that he hadn't understood me, and rather than explaining, I apologized. Sumimasen. <laughs> which means, sorry, but I don't understand either. <laughs> Now here was this poor wife having to listen to two languages she couldn't make sense of. She hadn't had any coffee either. <laughs> People are super impressed when they think that you speak Japanese. And completely without license, I basked in that admiration. My response to the next question was, Gosh, the wife sighed. I just feel so unsophisticated. What I'd actually said was, our big boy lives in Washington. It's one of the phrases I'd memorized off an audio instructional program <laughs> that someone had given me. After working my way through 27 CDs, I went to Tokyo for three months and enrolled in school. That said, my Japanese is primitive, just enough to try on clothes in a department store or get a few laughs from a supermarket cashier. Showing off is what you were doing, he would later say. And rather than admitting that he was right, I said that I'd been driven to it, which in a way was true. What really set me off was when the guest started correcting me. Bear in mind that he lives in the United States and just picked up his French, took no classes whatsoever. After slamming my pronunciation, 
He tried to bust me on definition. Like, for instance, we have all these wild rabbits in our yard. Q put in a vegetable garden, and now it looks like they're filming an Easter commercial. (laughs) I mean to say that these things are everywhere, and so bold. At first, he'd run into the woods at the sound of a door opening. At first, they'd run into the woods at the sound of a door opening. But now, if you throw a shoe at them, they'll scamper for a second and then regroup to chew on the laces. We wanted to hate these rabbits for eating up all our plants, but then they're so cute. What are you going to do? Like most couples, Hugh and I tend to divide the tasks. He replasters the walls of the attic, and I take dried-up bees and dress them in suits of armor made of tinfoil. He fills out the mountains of paperwork sent by our insurance company, and I decide what to call the various creatures that wander into our house or yard. Generally, I tend to stick with American names, normal ones like Sheila or Ronnie. Phil is always good, as is Curtis and Beth. Something about these rabbits, though, encouraged me to try something new. Not just French, but Nicaraguan French. As that was the only way to capture their insolence and bravado. The main one, for example, the one who's been eating our food the longest, I named Chagrin. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? The wife of our guest asked. I told her that the word was the same in French as it is in English, and that chagrin means sorrow. Actually, it means regret, her husband said. <laughs> Well, sorrowful regret, I told her. And what's that rabbit's name? She pointed to another, smaller one. That would be carolage. Wait a minute, her husband said. That means tile, like you'd put in your bathroom or kitchen. I know that, I said. Well, you can't call a rabbit tile. In French or English, what the hell kind of a name is that? A cute one, I told him. A third rabbit hopped into view, and before the wife could ask, I told her that its name was Chomage. <laughs> you mean Chomar, her husband said, and he turned to his wife. Chomage means unemployment. And Chomar is an unemployed man, so that would be the rabbit's name, unless, of course, it's a female, in which case it would be Chomage. <laughs> By this point, I'd had about all of this that I could take. It's my yard. The rabbit was my intruder, and I was free to name him whatever stupid thing I wanted, be it a noun, a verb, even an adjective, if I felt like it. (laughs) Oh, look at Runny, I could say. It appears that he and Moist (laughs) are going to pay a visit to their old friend, screened-in patio. Looking back, I wasn't upset about the rabbits so much as our house guest's French, which was a good 20 times better than my own. Making it all the harder is that he was a natural, a sort of genius, perhaps, who could look at a word once and hold it in his mind forever. 
I've made it sound as if his speaking was a pretension, but come on, the guy was on vacation. He was in France and he wanted to practice. It's not his fault that I'm so easily threatened. I felt so bad after he left that I named a rabbit after him. (laughs) Thank fucking God he's gone. isn't the most welcome presence in the garden. (laughs) But as I often say to Hugh, he's definitely the quickest. (laughs) And see, that doesn't work out on paper because it's just tour. And you don't know that it's tour or Nicaragua, and to, to try to write it that way would just seem gimmicky. So it's one of those things that really on paper just doesn't, just doesn't work. Um, right now I'm writing a book, and, and it's, about, it's a book of, I'd like to call them fables, but my morals are a little sketchy. <laughs> but all, all of the characters are animals. And, and it's going to be an illustrated book. And, and they're all like fairly short little stories. So this was, um, this, is one, this is one of them. The cat had a party to, be, to attend and went to the baboon to get herself groomed. What kind of party? The baboon asked. And she massaged the cat's neck in order to relax her, the way she did with all her customers. Hope it's not that harvest dance down on the riverbank. My sister went last year and said she'd never seen such rowdiness. Said a fight broke out between two possums and one gal, the wife of one or the other, got pushed onto a stump and knocked out four teeth. (laughs) And they were pretty, too. None of this yellowness you find on most things that eat trash. The cat shuddered. No, she said, this is just a little get-together, a few friends, that type of thing. Will there be food? The baboon asked. Something, the cat sighed. I just don't know what. Of course it's hard, the baboon said. Everybody eating different things. You got one who likes leaves and another that can't stand the sight of them. Folks has gotten so picky nowadays, I just lay out some peanuts and figure they either eat them or they don't. (laughs) Now, I wouldn't like a peanut, the cat said. Not at all. Well, I guess you just have drinks then. The trick is knowing when to stop. That's never been a problem for me, the cat boasted. I drink until I'm full, and then I push myself away from the table. Always have. Well, you got some sense, then, not like some of them around here. The the baboon picked a flea off the cat's head and stuck it gingerly between her teeth. Take this wedding I went to last Saturday, I think it was. A couple of marsh rabbits got married. You probably heard about it. The cat nodded. Now, I like a church service, but this was one of those write-your-own-vows sorts of things. (laughs) Neither of them ever picked up a pen in their life, but all of a sudden they're poets, right? Like, (laughs) Like, that's all it takes is being in love. My husband and I wrote our own vows, the cat said defensively. Well, sure you did, the baboon told her, but... You probably had something to say, not like these marsh rabbits carrying on that their love was like a tender sapling or some damn thing. And all all the while, they had the squirrel off to the side, plucking at a harp, I think it was. 
I had a harp player at my wedding, the cat said, and it was lovely. I bet it was, but you probably hired a professional, someone who could really play. The squirrel, I don't think she'd taken a lesson in her life, just clawed at those strings, almost like she's mad at them. Well, I'm sure she tried her best, the cat said. The baboon nodded and smiled, the way one must in the service industry. <laughs> She'd planned to tell a story about a drunken marsh rabbit, the brother of the groom at last week's wedding, but there was no point in it now, not with this client anyway. Whatever she said, the cat disagreed with, and unless she found a patch of common ground, she knew she was sure to lose her tip. You know, she said, cleaning a scab off the cat's neck, I hate dogs. <laughs> Simply cannot stand them. What makes you bring that up? The cat asked. Just thinking, the baboon said. Some kind of spaniel walked in yesterday asking for a shampoo, and I sent him packing. I said, I don't care how much money you have. I'm not making conversation with anyone who licks his own ass. <laughs> and the moment she said it, she realized her mistake. What's wrong with that, the cat said. It's good to have a clean anus. Why, I lick mine at least five times a day. Uh, and I admire you for it, the cat said. But, 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 but you're not a dog, meaning? On a cat, it's classy, the baboon said. There's a grace to it, but a dog, you know the way they hunker over, legs going every which way. Well, yes, the cat said. I suppose you have a point. Then they slobber and drool all over everything, and when they don't get wet, they chew to pieces. That they do, the cat chuckled. And the baboon relaxed and searched her memory for a slanderous dog story. The collie, the German shepherd, the spaniel she claimed to have turned away. They were all good friends of hers and faithful clients. But what would it hurt to pretend otherwise? and draw that fine line between licking ass and simply kissing it. <laughs> um, and I was just going to finish here by reading a few little things from my diary. I've been just keeping a diary forever, and it's, it's awfully helpful when it comes time to write a story, because um, I... Sometimes there's things in here that I can use. And Anyway, <clears throat> May 6, 2004, London. The English edition of my book was released today, and I began my week of publicity by sitting for a half a dozen regional BBC interviews, all of which were conducted long distance and sent down the wire from the main broadcasting house in London. None of the hosts had read my book, so to keep things moving, I asked them what their town was like and listened as they ticked off the various splendors of Leeds or Manchester. The one exception was the host of Radio Jersey, who described the island as, quote, an offshore pile of money with alcoholics clinging to it. <laughs> November 19, 2007. London. Yesterday's Guardian included a profile of Ricky Hatton, the current welterweight champion of the world. He can talk about anything, but I especially like him on the subject of his father. 
a man who stands only five feet tall and looks, his son says, like he just fell off a fucking key ring. April 4th, 2007, Paris. I looked up the place where we're staying in Athens and found the following description. Caressing the foot of Lycabetus Hill, the Periscope Hotel is set amidst a flurry of history and the capital of the cradle of civilization. Kolonaki is the name given to the neighborhood which envelops the hotel and is one of the most famous in Athens. At the confluence of the city's culture, art, design, fashion, and business, this hotel allows you to step to the authentic rhythm of the Athenian pulse. (laughs) A hip experience you will never forget. Listed under amenities, beneath direct dial telephone and minibar, is written different types of pillows. Oops. Hmm. October 15th, 2007, Canton, Michigan. I met a flight attendant at last night's book signing, and during our brief conversation, she taught me a new term. You know how a plastic bottle of water will get all crinkly during a flight, she asked? Well, that happens to people, too, to our insides. That's why we get all gassy. All right, I said. So what me and the other gals will sometimes do is fart while we walk up and down the aisle. (laughs) No one can hear it on account of the engine noise. But anyway, that's what we call crop dusting. (laughs) April 4th, 2007. Paris. In need of jokes, beginning with, a man walks into a bar, I looked on the internet and found the following. A ham sandwich walks into a bar and orders a drink. Sorry, says the bartender, we don't serve food here. (laughs) A guy with dyslexia walks into a bra. A pair of battery jumper cables walks into a bar. The bartender says, you can come in, but you better not start anything. (laughs) A bear walks into a bar and says, I'd like a beer and a packet of peanuts. The barman says, why the big paws? A baby seal walks into a bar. What can I get you, asks the bartender. And the baby seal answers, anything but a Canadian club. (laughs) June 10th, 2004, Dublin. In the exotic gift section of Brown Thomas Department Store, I came upon a small packet of tea leaves, the label reading... Rare Chinese oolong, hand-picked by specially trained monkeys. (laughs) I thought of the price, $20 per gram, and then I imagined a group of unemployed peasants. Goddamn monkeys coming over here taking our jobs. (laughs) Thank you.
And with that, tonight's host, the Dutch journalist Tim Overdeek, took to the stage for one of David Sedaris's famously long extemporaneous conversations. They talked a lot about his time living abroad, but Tim started by asking David why he chose to write stories featuring animals. It was just kind of a lazy way to get back into fiction writing. And because everyone knows what a cat looks like and everyone knows like a, what a baboon looks like, so I don't have to describe them. And so you can just kind of get right to it. And they're just types of people. But the types of people haven't changed. You know, I mean, I, I could sit down and read Aesop's fables and, and still, you know, about trying to bite off more than you can chew or uh, not being able to forgive. And But I don't even want to look at those. I just... I guess a better word for them might just be like little stories about animals. But I, I set up rules for myself, like no animal can have a name. You know, it's a cat and the baboon. Um, like one of them I wrote about a mouse who goes to prison, a cat who goes to prison and joins an AA program in prison, right? And and there's a mouse who's the head of the AA program in prison. But like the cat doesn't want to eat the mouse or anything like that. They're just two alcoholics in prison. Uh, and, and I just started with the cat and the mouse, and I thought, okay, they're in prison. And then I realized that they were alcoholics. They were both different kinds of alcoholics. You know, like the, the mouse is getting sober, and the cat just think, you know, just doesn't think that it's really for him. Um, and I enjoyed it, you know, because I thought, look at me, look at me, and look, and then it turns out that the mouse had, cat's best friend was, was turned inside out, and I thought, oh, I didn't know that when I got up this morning, you know, it's just, <laughs> I guess it's just the joy of writing fiction, I suppose. What type of animal are you? What, what type of animal would you be, would you like to be? What kind of animal would I be? I mean, it would be great to be able to fly. Uh, yeah, to be able to fly. And did you read that book, um, Freakonomics? Okay, it was written by two New York Times reporters, and it's someone gave it to me for Christmas, and I finally sat down to read it. Right, and there's a, a chapter about how your name will kind of define who you are. Right, and there's a man in this book who had a son, and he named his son Winner, thinking, "Okay, how can he go wrong?" And then he had another son, and he named that son Loser. Okay, <laughs> and as of the book's printing, Winner had been arrested like three dozen times, and Loser, who wisely goes by Lou, um, <laughs> was a very successful police detective. Right. And then there's a woman in there whose daughter, she gets very upset when people mispronounce her daughter's name, which is Shatid, okay? Spelled S-H-I-T-H-E-A-D, okay? Now, that's just shithead, okay? There's, there's no Shatid to it. That, that's how you spell shithead, and that's a daughter's name. So we had a window box. I have a window box outside my office in Paris, you know, just for flowers, but the flowers died. And, and then I went, I went back over the summer and there was a pigeon in the window box. And, and, it, and it flew away and I looked and I saw two eggs. And anyway, so I decided the pigeon's name was Shatid, right? <laughs> and then these eggs hatched. 
And they were really ugly and really greedy, and she vomits in their mouth to get, that's how she feeds them. Um, just wretched lives, just right from the beginning. You know, like when you, <laughs> when you look at a pigeon on the street and you know it, you see so many with a clubbed foot, and you think, what happened? Like, <laughs> to so many of you. You know what I mean? It's like India. It's like what I imagined going to India would be like. Um, so they, just watching them made me think, oh, I should write a story about pigeons. So sometimes I just sit around, you know, I'm around the animals, and that gives me, um, I'm sorry, to answer your question, what animal would I like to be? <laughs> I think a bird. So you could a bird. Just, <laughs> a bird, especially here, would be good, because no one has curtains. So you could just fly up and watch people have sex and fly over into the other window and... And shit on people's heads. Uh huh. <laughs> your stories. You, you you read one that you said was not meant to be printed. But when when I read your books and your stories and your essays, and, and most of them have been on the radio, but a lot of them just 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 for print. But I can just see you write them. How, how do you do? Do you actually write them reading aloud? There is such a connection between. <coughs> how you write them on paper, but also being able to, to, to read them aloud. Well, for that particular story, um, Ira, some, a producer on Ira's show said, we're doing a show called Innocence Abroad, right? So first I wrote an animal story about two birds who vacation, who winter in Guatemala. And they're American. And they said, you know, every, not every summer we go down there, there are hundreds of thousands. But do you think any of those birds have learned to speak English? Think again. So, so again, there are types of people who... And so I wrote that, and it just got completely out of hand, and then I wrote that right there. But again, and I don't mean to sound like a baby about this, but I was the only one who lives in another country. Like, when you live in another country, that's a big part of your day-to-day life. You meet other Americans, and you have this little pissing contest over who pronounces words best. And, and the French or whatever, the Dutch, they just go about their lives and they don't understand that you're like having this little battle with someone else from St. Louis. Um, uh, so I wrote the animal story and then I thought, you know, actually that's sort of what I wanted to talk about. So I sat down and, and, and wrote that. Um, and I guess writing about Nicaragua, like I'd always wanted to write what, what about... Country? Nicaragua. <laughs> I'd always wanted to, that had always stuck in my mind, and that was something like from, I don't know, 1985 I took that man's class, but it just seemed a good way to kind of get into it because I thought maybe a lot of people had that teacher, and then you can just sort of lead from that to living in another country. You need some kind of a gateway, you know, for some people, and then so they can stand in your shoes. Like, It's not like you put your shoes on the floor and say, step into these. Like they'd say, oh, I don't know. I don't really like shoes like that. Or, um, you know, my, I have bunions or whatever. I mean, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you have to unlace the shoes and you have to make them attractive to people and then they'll step into them. And then, then you can go wherever you want in the story because they can understand what you're talking about, I suppose. Um, so that always seems like the first part. Um, and then, again, I, I don't... Uh, I'm just trying to picture you writing this oh. stuff. 
One page a day, I read somewhere. I, I, I Max? G- pardon? One page a day. Oh, that was a couple books ago. I was under a deadline, and so I thought, okay, I have to write a finished page a day, which meant at the end of the week I had to have like seven pages. But that was like in 2000. Um, No, I sit down and write like four hours a day. But I count anything as writing. I count writing in my diary as writing. I count writing a letter as writing. I think that's a mistake a lot of people make because they put so much pressure on themselves. Like if you sit down and if you, if I were to sit down and say what I write today is going to be in the New Yorker, then it's a guarantee I'll never finish it. Um, because? Because then I, it's under so much pressure and then you think of all the people who might get the New Yorker. Like what if, I don't know, like what if, okay, I don't mean to sound name droppy, but this is... Okay, but this is, this is the kind of thing that happens to me, right? So my lecture agent calls and says, there's someone in Los Angeles who would like to meet with you when you're there next month. Okay, and then you think of all the people who live in Los Angeles. Phyllis Diller, okay, <laughs> wants to meet with me. And, and I said, are you sure she's not dead? But she's... <laughs> so what if Phyllis Diller gets a New Yorker? Right? That's just something I didn't think about. So, if, so you sit down and you say, okay, I'm going to write this for the New Yorker and it's going to go to Phyllis Diller's house in Bel Air. Then you're really going to freeze up. Um, and that you was, do have uh, to tell us about visiting Phyllis Diller right now. Bel Air. Well, see, that's the kind of thing, too. You can't really write about that kind of thing because it just makes you, because then no one's going to invite you to their house, you know, if you do that. Uh, Oh, oh golly. No, so I try not, I, I mean, what I mean is if you sit down every day and if you put too much pressure on what it is that you're going to do, then I don't know. I'm, fine. I'm really good with a deadline. Like I don't miss deadlines. But I find it best for me to sit down. And I don't remember, it's a quote someone said, to sit down every day without hope and without, no, that doesn't sound good. Without, I mean, you just sit down every day and say, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit down and see what happens today." But without, is, is that easy? Pardon? Is that easy? Sit down and just let it come. How do you decide got, what's fun? How do you decide when you have done a short story? You you rehash it, you read it aloud because you do read it out here. When do you decide it's it's done? Then I'm going on a tour in. I leave on Sunday and I'm going to 30 cities in the United States in 31 days. And it's a lecture tour. And that means that I read out loud for an hour in theaters. And I have eight new stories that I'm going to start with. And I don't know, maybe none of them will work. But I believe in them today. I believe in them, right? And one of the reasons I don't want to give them to my editor at The New Yorker is if now is if I do, and if he says, oh, we're only going to take like two of them, then I'm automatically going to think, those other six stories suck. And I'm not even, I'm not even going to want to read them out loud. So I, want to, I read something out loud, and then I go back to the hotel, and I rewrite it, and I read it, and rewrite it, and read it, and rewrite it. And some stories I've got like different versions of, or different bold. You know, there's certain things that, I, that might be a cheap laugh, and I need to hear it, and I need to see what it sounds like. Um... And so then I have another version without it. But it's going to, you know, I want to learn as much as I can on my own before I give it to my editor. 
because that's happened before. And he said, oh, we need to cut this. And I'll say, actually, you know, that's the biggest laugh in the whole story. I mean, people really respond to that. So I like being able, there was a story, the New Yorker asked me to write something about food, and so I did. And then I went on, I wrote it, and it was published, and I went on tour, and I read it out loud, and it was like, God damn it. I wish that I had worked this in front of an audience before, before it was published. Because it's just, maybe on the page it's okay, but out loud it's just, ugh. That's the ultimate test. It has to be tested first before you can... Yeah, I mean, paper. I'd like, yeah, yeah. I, I prefer to test why, it first. Why? why? Is it funny enough on paper already as it is? I'm not a good judge of that. Is it like insecurity about judge. what you write? No, but I'd like, I'd prefer... Okay, like in that last story, when it started off, it wasn't... Um, I'm trying to think, like, I don't think I had, oh, I didn't have the dressing bees in suits of armor. You know, which, in truth, I've only done once. <laughs> that's what. But that's the biggest laugh in the whole piece, and I didn't have it in there. And I read it out loud, and I thought, you know, something needs to go there. And on paper, I don't think I would have realized that something needs to go there. And I certainly wouldn't have realized that that needs to go there. Uh, so I just appreciate the opportunity to be able to... I, I feel like it's an opportunity I have and that I would be foolish not to use that. Like, I, I'm not going to... I've finished this book tour, right? I started in June. And so I was in North America and South America for six weeks, Right. So I don't ever, and then I read that tonight. Okay, I'm never going to open that book again. Um, I might have to for the paperback next, or I'm going to Germany. But after that, I'm not opening that book again. Okay, I was sick of that a long time ago because all those stories I read and then went back to the hotel and rewrote and read and rewrote. So I've read them out loud so many times. Um, so you're going back to the U.S. Um, after living abroad, France, uh, the U.K. What's it going to be like for you to come home, or is it not a homecoming to you? It's just homecoming to your audience. Uh, you know what? One thing, I go back to the United States, and I like that I understand it in a way. Like I understand. Like I understood why George Bush got elected a second time. Do you know what I mean? Like French people would try to me, get me to explain it to them. And I thought, well, I think you have to be from there, like, to understand <laughs> how such a thing could happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I feel like I understand things in a way that I don't understand things in England, and I don't understand things in France. That said, I like not understanding, and I like wrapping my mind around things, and I like asking people about it, and I like getting it wrong. Um, it's bad to get it wrong on paper, You know, to go and act like you understand this country that you've only been living in for a few years. Um, but I like being a foreigner, I think. And because I like being a this doesn't this sounds goofy, but because I like being a foreigner, it feels good, I think, sometimes to go home. Like where I don't have to worry about running my mouth. Like, you know, like you just run your mouth you lived in the United States. You just run your mouth sometimes. You, 
you run your mouth to a cashier and you say at the airport, Does it, are you sick to death of 20s? How many 20s do you think you've gotten today? <laughs> and she'll say, you know, if I even, even thought about it, I made enough 20s. If it was our 20s and they were stairs, I'd climb those stairs and it'd be like, goddamn stairway to heaven. You know, like, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and you go, mm-hmm. Like, whereas in France, I just... <laughs> I just don't feel that comfortable, you know, like <laughs> running my mouth. Um, and even in England, I feel like a donkey, like hee haw, hee haw, you know, like <laughs> I just feel <laughs> like I should have like big teeth this big, and uh, so. So where do you where do you feel home? Where do I feel at home? Uh, Well, I mean, I guess it's in the United States is where I... But I don't have a home there. I guess I just feel like... I mean, I guess it's a place where I belong. But that doesn't mean I have to live there just because I belong. <laughs> you know what I mean. I mean, you lived in another country. And, and I, I guess I just always thought, like, if I could live in another country, why wouldn't I? I mean... I lived in the United States for 40 years. Like, why? And if I and if I can work wherever I want, and if Hugh can work wherever he wants, you know, like we went to Japan for three months. I mean, and and granted, we're very lucky. We could go to Japan for three months, and we could he could go with me, and the you know we could both work at home. But why not? Like. What else are you going to do? I mean, that's what you're supposed to, it's what you're, that's what it's, life's for, I always thought. So, and I like moving. I like packing. I'm really, really good at it. And there aren't that many, there aren't that many things I'm good at, but I'm really good at packing. Um, I think we, we, I speak on behalf probably of everybody. We feel so bad for Hugh somehow. I think we love him, but we feel bad for him. You understand that? You feel bad for him because... Well... <laughs> no, I understand. I know exactly. What, and, and that is exactly how I feel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I am so, so grateful. Hugh and I have been together for 17 years. And if he ever breaks up with... It's going to be, be... I will be clinging to his ankle. I will be... <laughs> I am so grateful so incredibly grateful that he's with me and I shower him with gifts and I tell him constantly but I wouldn't break up like I had no I, I mean I and do what I just I uh he told me before we came here that he's been buying Christmas presents in February already for Hugh That's I start my Christmas shopping in February but You know, the people I know who hate Christmas, it's like, well, of course you hate Christmas. You go out three days before Christmas with all these people who are just like yourself, who are unprepared, and, and the stores are crowded, and, and, and the lines are long, and of course you're going to hate it. But if you start in February, <laughs> then you'd shop at your leisure. I bought, I don't know, I bought a big Christmas present here today. And I bought another present I'm going to keep for myself. And then another present that it just, <laughs> two Christmas presents. I bought a present for Hugh, a present for my lecture agent, 
and then a little thing for myself and then something that, you know, every now and then you think, I, should, I just got to buy it. You know, I'll figure out who to give it to later. But if I don't buy this, it's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. So, <laughs> and I'll, you know, and there's always birthdays and I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm a very shallow person and I, I don't know what to do when I go to a place and there's nothing to buy. I was just... In, <laughs> I don't. I was just in Australia, and it's like, get me out of here. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 people, the people were lovely. They really are. But there is nothing to buy. <laughs> and you go to the grocery store, and you might as well be in a grocery store in America. There's not even anything like, oh, look at that. It says Jimmy, but it's a Band-Aid. You know, it's not even... <laughs> there's nothing... Um, so I went from there to Tokyo, and there it was like a, a parody, like a commercial, you know, like I go into the store, and then I come out, you know, I go in the revolving door, empty-handed, and I come out like, like that, and I have to take a taxi, that's how you say, ta that's how you get a cab in, in Tokyo, you say, taxi, <laughs> uh, I'd have to take a taxi back to uh, the hotel and unload my booty, um, and this is a good, you know, maybe it's different if you live here. You would grow immune. That's what happens. You live in a place and you grow immune to its, to its charms. But um, there's good shopping in this town. The problem is the stores are always closed. This <laughs> <laughs> a very pleasant evening. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. David Sedaris speaking with Dutch journalist Tim Overdeek way back in 2008. Mr. Sedaris published a whole book featuring animal stories just two years after this night. It was called Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk. Did you know that you can go to our website, john-adams.nl slash videos, where there is a link to the video of this extraordinary event. And we also have a newsletter you can sign up for and a veritable treasure trove of great American thinkers and speakers at john-adams.nl. And while you're there, why not become a member of the John Adams? Not only will you support what we do, you get a discount to future live events. In the meantime, you should go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review of the show. This helps get the word out. We can keep on sharing the very best of American thinkers with you entirely free of charge. Well, that's it for this week's show. Our theme song is called La Prensa by the Parlandos. Our editor is Tracy Metz. From Amsterdam, this was Bright Minds, the podcast from the John Adams Institute. I'm Jonathan Gruber. Thank you for listening. <laughs>